Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Welcome back, everybody. All right, let's get into it here. Uh, first of all, I've written another Substack, and it is on the American Classroom Substack page, theamericanclassroom.substack.com. Uh, it is titled The Institutional Tie That Binds an Evidentiary List of the Collapse of the Education Business in America. Uh, here's what I've done with this particular Substack article. I basically have created a giant list. Uh, it's at least 14 points for the category of American K-12 schools. There are nine points when it comes to American K-12 teachers unions and national associations. I have another 15 points under American colleges and universities. There are six points for state and federal governments, five points regarding the consistent noise that we hear regarding American education, and then a couple of paragraphs on the constant thread that, of course, runs throughout all of it. What I plan on doing, because this is becoming a bit more prevalent and it's certainly ramping up, and, and uh, the timeline on all of this in particular regarding the collapse from those of us that can see what's going on, excluding the brainwashed, of course. Um, the timeline, it seems to me, is speeding up, and all of this is, of course, coalescing here rather quickly. And I plan on creating and, and keeping lists like this going and adding to it, essentially, uh, at least two or three times a year. It may end up being even faster than that. So. You can expect to see these lists popping up a little more often, I think, throughout the course of an entire year. And I think, frankly, that it's a list like this that you could send to just about anybody and say, hey, look, American education is collapsing. Look at this giant list of things that are taking place, and all of this has just taken place over the last three months, and it by no means is even hitting every single subject. Because again, there's no way that I can possibly bring up every, every single thing that's taking place, but I'm certainly trying. And uh, I'm certainly trying on on the Substack with this very generic list that I've generated, but uh, it's it's convincing, I think, and I think it would be convincing for anybody who's unsure or doesn't even believe for a minute that the American K-12 school system would would collapse on itself because of their own decisions and the lies and the things that they believe that aren't real and so on and so forth. But there you go. Give that a look if you're interested, and uh, yeah, move it along to somebody else if you want to wake them up, maybe. Okay, moving on. I wanted to start with this. This was on, uh, let's see here, March 24th at 10.30 a.m., the 118th Congress in their first session voted to eliminate the Department of Education with Thomas Massey's bill, and the vote failed. There were 265 no's and 161 yeses, zero presents, and 15 people didn't vote. Let's see here. There were 60 Republicans who voted no. Four of them chose not to vote. There were 205 no's for the Democrats, and 11 of them chose not to vote. So there's that. Giant list, of course, you can bounce over to this particular website, which is clerk.house.gov. You can find the bill itself. It is roll call 156, bill number HR5. 
the uh, yeah 118th Congress, like I said, Massey of Kentucky Amendment Number 15 on agreeing to the amendment, and like I said, it failed. It was a recorded vote. 60 Republicans, like I like I said, voted no, and Elise Stefanik was one of them that voted no. People have got to understand again, regardless of political party, when you're given an opportunity like this to abolish something. You have to vote yes, and if you don't, you give yourself away in an instant. You've heard me bring up the Department of Education at length on this show time and time again. There's no need to have it, as we know, and what we also, of course, know is that if it were eliminated, which it needs to be, the growing pains that would exist would be endless on down the line regarding state and local education. Uh, The corruption would be immense. If you think it's bad now, wait for the elimination of the Department of Education. You're going to watch endless people make backdoor deals and deals in the shadows that, that you couldn't possibly imagine in order to infiltrate state and local county, very specific district education. And, uh, and, and that would be a fight of its own, but it has to happen. And that's a fight that, of course, we're already seeing take place with the presence of the Department of Education present. So with it gone, it would, uh, it would eliminate any federal input, so to speak, except for applying the law. That, that would be it. The federal government's role would simply be there to apply the law and make sure that the law is being followed, you would hope. But we've seen that cave in also. So. Who's, who's to really know? Either way, uh, it has to be done away with. And just like that, 60, 60 Republicans with the majority in the House said, no thanks. We need to keep the Department of Education. That's a huge problem. But like I said, you can bounce over to the clerk.house.gov website. You can find that particular bill, uh, bill number HR5, and you can... Uh, you can categorize basically the the votes and you can categorize the parties and you can s- select Republican and then the no votes and then you'll see all the people who voted no. And maybe those people live around where you live, maybe they don't, but uh, you can check that out and there you go. All right, moving on. The Crumbly case. Uh, I've got some audio to play here, a brief little article. It's pretty self-explanatory. I actually can't believe for a minute that, uh, that this has gone to trial, ladies and gentlemen. The Crumbly parents are actually going to be tried. The three-court, I'm sorry, three-judge panel, rather, in Michigan has uh, agreed to have this go to trial. I, I can't believe it. I really can't. In fact, I woke up at about 4.30 in the morning not that long ago when this actually occurred, uh, and, I t- and I clicked on YouTube quickly, and it was one of the first things that popped up, and I thought to myself, this is beyond strange, and then the only thing that entered my mind was race, and I thought to myself, why didn't you think of that beforehand? Why, why, why didn't that even cross my mind beforehand that this, that this is a race-related thing? Because again, when was the last time you heard of any parent being tried because their son or daughter 
either physically assaulted some someone or or killed someone, stabbed someone, shot someone. When was the last time you've heard of a parent being tried for such a thing when the parent had nothing to do with it? When was the last time you heard of black parents being tried for such a thing? When was the last time you heard of Mexican, Asian, or even white parents being tried for such a thing? They are straight up coming after these people, not just because they're white, but clearly because they want to try to set a precedent regarding all of this to make sure that any gun owners need to be very careful and that if someone commits a crime with a gun that legally belongs to the parents, that it's the parents that can actually be tried for manslaughter. Again, this, is, this would turn into a giant fiasco. It's going to already turn into a giant fiasco because you're going to have countless people in the state of Michigan. I mean, think of Detroit, for God's sakes. Think of all of the things and all of the crimes that happen in Detroit on a day-in and day-out basis, and no one's tried at all. No parents are tried. And in a, a murderer, a teenage murderer living in their parents' home, possesses a gun, legally or illegally, goes and commits a murder, do they ever arrest the parents? They're trying to make that commonplace, but they're not really going to apply the law equally, are they? I bet they don't. I, re I really bet they don't. If they end up being convicted, which would be an abomination, you're, you, all hell is going to break loose. All hell will break loose. You will see an unequal application of the law across the board. They're going to come for white parents first. They're not going to apply any of this uh, to black parents. Won't happen. It won't happen. This is going to get real ugly, real quick. And again, thanks to the state of Michigan and their corrupt prosecutors and everything that's going on there, they're, they're opening up a giant can of worms. And, and there's, no, I mean, there's no way. The worms are out. There's no way that they're going to be able to put all of this back where it belongs. Even if there's an innocent ruling or a not, not guilty ruling in this case when it's all said and done, which, by the way, it should be a rather fast trial. I can't imagine this stretching out for any real length of time. Uh, and it'll probably be on all of the law channels on YouTube and XYZ, and I'm going to do my best to watch as much of it as I can, and I'm going to bring those results to you as they happen. But... Uh, I, I yeah I'm I'm at a loss I really am this is weird this one is weird I just don't well I mean we can expect riots can't we I mean somebody's going to get upset if there's an innocent ruling and uh, they're they're not they're, they're found not guilty if that ends up being the case people are going to lose their minds if they're found guilty people should lose their minds because this is this is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. Okay. Uh, let me just play the quick audio here. It's pretty self-explanatory, but here it is. Three, two, one. In November uh, of 2021, of course, we know uh, what happened at Oxford High School there in Michigan. Four students shot and killed by then 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly. Well, now a historic ruling from the Michigan State Appeals Court. The parents of the Oxford High School shooter can face trial. James and Jennifer Crumbly are both charged with involuntary manslaughter after their son admitted to killing four students and hurting seven others 
back in November of 2021. Now, remember, uh, this was working its way through the legal system about whether they could be charged and whether they would go to trial for these four counts each they're facing of involuntary manslaughter. Fox 2 Detroit reporter Charlie Langton has this story. The Supreme Court ordered a lower court to give an opinion as to whether or not the parents of convicted Oxford High School shooter Ethan Crumley should be charged with manslaughter. Some thought new law was about to be made. This is an exceptional set of circumstances. In a unanimous three-judge Court of Appeals opinion on Thursday, a court ruled James and Jennifer Crumley can stand trial for manslaughter. Were you surprised by this decision? Todd Perkins is a respected criminal defense attorney who has followed the case from the beginning. The answer to your question is, no, I'm not really surprised because I think the courts see this as a case that needs to be tried. In an exhausting review of the facts, the court laid out a case against the parents showing problems in the Crumbly family as early as 2021, when the 15-year-old reflected mental health instability. And the parents knew it. A fact pattern that the court noted is not present in most cases. But I don't think this is the um, this is the situation in which um, the prosecutor's office is trying to say, or the courts are trying to say, every parent needs to be worried about, or needs to be worried about being charged for their children's behavior. The opinion also notes the prosecutor doesn't have to show as much evidence to start the case as it has to do at trial. If probable cause is here, beyond a reasonable doubt, it's way up there. And that's for trial. That's for trial. And anything can happen when the jury speaks at trial. You know, once the jury speaks and these people could be found not guilty. An appeal is likely. No trial date has been set. In Detroit, Charlie Langton, Fox 2 News. Now again, just to paint the picture, just painting the picture here, the Fox News guys talking to a black male defense attorney. When asked the question again, is this unusual? He was like, no, not really. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is unusual. Again, if the roles were reversed, and you know this just like I do, if they were black parents in this position, everybody would be losing their minds. What an outrage. Jesse Jackson would be on the scene. Reverend Al Sharpton would be on the scene. The two of them would be talking back and forth. Countless people would be paying attention to this more closely and being and, and yelling about it, without a doubt. The Reverend Jackson, ladies and gentlemen, he would be there, no doubt about it. Uh, this is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Will has to go to trial, and they could be found not guilty. Yeah, yes, they, they certainly could, and they should. They should. Are they going to win Parent of the Year awards? No, but that's not a crime. I know all kinds of dumb parents. I've met them throughout. I, I met them throughout my entire career when I was a school teacher. Lots of them. Lots of them. Negligent parents. All kinds of parents. You know, parents who belonged in jail, frankly, and and were walking around free and and just fine. But uh, yeah, this is nuts. They, they never threw or charged parents for their children beating somebody up at school. They wouldn't say, well, your, your son just engaged in a felony. Let's look at the parents as to what they're doing. That never happened. That never happened. And I understand that people got killed here, and this is, that's clearly a different scenario, but they're not going after the school officials. They're not going after all of the people who are contractually obligated to search bags, and to alert police, and to alert parents. 
again, we know that the counselor in the situation alerted the parents. The parents came in, they talked with the parents, and they were in agreement that that Ethan could stay in the building. Yes, they wanted Ethan to go home, but that wasn't going to solve Ethan's real problem. And again, the police were not called. There was no 911 call. There was nothing. They were just like, well, the resource officer's not here, so we can't search his bag, and we're not even thinking about searching his bag, but uh, there's nothing else that we can do because, well, the resource officer just doesn't happen to be here. No one thought there was a problem. No one really thought that there was a deep-seated problem where he was actually going to kill somebody. A teacher was concerned. A female teacher was like, he's drawing stuff. This seems weird. He's looking up bullets. That seems odd. Let's talk to him. Counselor did. Counselor was like, well, yeah, he said he bought a gun, but it was for target practice, and they went target shooting, and, and that's not unusual, and people do that, and blah, blah, blah. That was it. Why, if the parents are on trial here, why isn't everybody else? Again, the preliminary hearing that I watched was so revealing. It was remarkably revealing from a school procedure standpoint that it was next-level stupidity. You're talking about next-level dumb. Constant people and just this consistent ideology of we can fix all the problems. We don't need to call the police for anything. We don't need to do any of that. Everybody's fine. We can, we can extinguish all of these situations on our own. That's our job. I'm the counselor. Listen to my soothing voice. We're here for you, Ethan. We're here for you. He actually said that right before he sent him back to class and then later on shot up the place. But this is, uh, this is, this is next level interesting. I'm, I'm shocked it got to this point, but I'm not shocked based on corruption and trying to send a message and trying to stir the pot and everything else. So there you go. Um, like I said, when the trial date is set, I'll let people know about that. I'll do my best to cover that. And uh, yeah, you know, I've never done live streaming before. I know that I have a Rumble channel and uh, it's possible probably to do it on Rumble, but I don't really want to be that guy. I don't want to be the person that's live streaming the trial and then making comments over top of it. Some people might find that interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, I personally wouldn't. I, I don't think I'd do it. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I would look at this strictly from a why aren't you blaming the educators and the administration and the policies and procedures and contracts? Why aren't you blaming them? Um, yeah. Other than that, but I, I, yeah, I really don't know what else to add. I, I will watch the trial as much as I can because I'm, I'm shocked. They're still in jail. They've been in jail this whole time. They're in shackles, for God's sakes. This is next-level abuse. This is just beyond weird. Like I said, they're not going to win any Parent of the Year awards, okay? But they didn't know he was going to shoot up the building, and they wouldn't have bought him a gun if they thought that was going to be the case. These parents aren't psychos. They're maybe self-absorbed and, and clearly negligent, but they're not, you know, they weren't setting their son up to kill people. That's not what was going on here. And that's going to be a high bar, I think, for the prosecution to try to reach. Putting the parents on the stand, I think, would be a move that they might want to make. Again, not a lawyer, not a legal strategist, don't know anything about that, but you put the parents on the stand, I, I think any parent in 
the jury is going to be sympathetic to the fact that look, you can't you can't see this coming. You can't see something like this coming. Again, whether they bought a gun for him or not, went target shooting with him or not, spent time with him or not, uh, you know, I don't think they looked into the kid's journal and they were like, "Wow, he's drawn a lot of a lot of stick figures with a lot of guns and bullets going through stick figures' heads." Perhaps we should, uh, you know, sit our son down and talk to him. I, I don't even think they were paying attention to that, if that was even a thing. But I don't know. I could ramble about it more. I just, I, I think it's awful. I think it's absolutely awful that it's happening. Because if it can happen here, ladies and gentlemen, it can happen just about anywhere. So there's that. All right. Uh, and again, there were lots of articles basically speaking to that audio that were written and same kind of thing. Okay, this also happened at the end of last week. The Parents' Bill of Rights, quote-unquote, uh, won zero votes from Democrats who attacked it as fascism in some extreme attack on schools. It says from Fox News here, the bill is the GOP's response to growing anger about a lack of access to school information across the nation. Now, the evidence is clear, and this again is one of those things that I mentioned in the Substack article that is a part of the giant list that I created there. This is one of the reasons why these organizations are crumbling. The divide is, is crystal clear. K-12 schools do not want parents to know what's going on. End of story. They will do whatever they can to say that they're being transparent, quote-unquote. Again, any K-12 school district that uses the phrase transparent, you need to be very careful about believing them, because usually that's the dead giveaway that they should not be trusted. They're also all, always going to say that we love communication, you need to communicate with parents, do it, do it, do it, until you're communicating with parents about what's really going on in the school district, and then they come after the employee, or they'll even engage in retribution against the student themselves. Believe me when I say this, I have a lot of personal experience with this. A lot. The number of administrators that I've worked for in the 10 years that I was a school teacher, uh, I don't have enough fingers and toes. It, it's that many administrators. And all of them, by and large, except for maybe one guy, all, by, all of them, by and large, were on the same page. They'd all say the same thing. They would all say, you need to communicate with parents because we don't want parents contacting us. We as school teachers would say, sure, no problem. We would communicate with parents, and then parents would start to ask us questions. And me being an honest person, I would tell them what was going on. I'd say, this particular person did this over here. And then the administrator didn't follow up with what they were contractually obligated to do over here. And then, of course, that would make its way back to an administrator one way or another. And then they would come after me. And then I would say, I'm communicating with parents. You wanted us to communicate with parents because you don't want parents contacting you. Well, the parent contacted me. I told them what was going on regarding this specific situation, whatever it was. And now all of a sudden they're contacting you and you don't like that. That's not my problem. It means that you need to fix the thing that's broken that's causing the parent to call the school in the first place. If you just fix the thing and then tell the parent, we have fixed said thing, theoretically, 
the parent won't call back ever again because the thing has been squashed permanently. But that's not what happens. It never works out that way. They don't permanently fix their problems, which is why you always have parents on the outside consistently screaming and yelling and being concerned because they have a right to be concerned. I mean, look what's happened inside of the entire business this entire time. So when Democrats, by the way, you, you know I love words and the definitions of real words and their origins. When, def, when, when Democrats actually say this is fascism, yes, it is. Because as you've heard me say, the definition of fascism at its origin meant you are anti-Bolshevik, which means in one fell swoop, every Democrat who uses the word fascist and says that this parent's bill of rights is fascist, they're telling you that they, Democrats, are Bolsheviks. And isn't it a Bolshevik tactic to attack parents when they're standing up for their children? Yes. Isn't it a Bolshevik tactic to get children to go against their parents and to consistently disagree with their parents and be combative with their parents so that government can be the parent? Yes. That's Bolshevism. Isn't it Bolshevik? To also, or Bolshevism, to also pervert children with either literature, drugs, you name it. Is that a Bolshevik tactic? Yes. So Democrats are actually right when they're calling us fascists because technically we are fascists. We don't like Bolshevism. That's what the word means. So I, I'm not sure what else I can add. It'll be interesting if this passes the Senate. I don't expect Joe Biden to sign this or anybody else. Um, again, parents have always had a right to know what goes on in their school. And it's, it's the, it pretty much goes without saying. And, and again, there are endless K-12 school districts who, who do communicate a great many things with parents. However, they are such a large organization. And there are so many secrets and so many policies that have to be followed that they're not going to tell parents about everything that's that's going on and they're certainly not yeah they're just not going to do that again when they say the word transparent that should be your red flag they're not really transparent they're not going to be transparent one of the other things i heard a school district say once it was actually the former school district where i used to work in southwest florida and this was just like a year ago they said well Certain laws have been passed in the state of Florida regarding education, and we here in this county, we follow the law. Bullshit. Again, they had a microphone in front of their face, they were on the camera, they were on the nightly news, and that was their talking point. That was, that was the quote that they said, well, we here in this county, we follow the law. This is the same county that massed endless students and gagged countless students for a year and a half in Southwest Florida. So no, they don't follow the law. And it doesn't matter what they're referencing, that's, that's not what's taking place. Um, there is also this, I wanted to mention this. This was a, let's see, Fairpo Fairport New York School Board and a superintendent were served for 
their possession within their own libraries, of course. It's an old yarn. It's not not a new thing of, of, of course, having the sexually graphic and pornographic children's books within their libraries. Um, I don't know if it was a if it was a parent who sued them in the video or who this particular individual was, but it was someone. And again, they weren't serving them with legal papers like you're being sued. They served them with a notice to go after their bonds, which as we know is a strategy that has been used at length. I used it. Countless parents around me used it. We used it together at the same time. Uh, we didn't follow through with the process to having it notarized, which is probably what we should have done. In fact, it is what we should have done when we did it. But um, it's, I mean, it was interesting when this particular guy did it in New York, gave a great speech, educated him on the law, and here's the kicker. And this was the funny part. When he's done passing out the the legal warning, the notarized legal warning, basically saying, we're coming after your bonds if you don't remove all of these texts from all of your libraries and all of your classrooms. If you don't, you don't do that, we're taking it to the next level. When he was done passing out all the papers, the president of the school board openly addressed the room that was disagreeing with all of this, because again, this is where the psychos start to speak up. He, he, looked, at, he looked at them and he said, settle down, everybody. It's okay. We as school board members, and I've been a school board member for a long time. Uh, he goes, we get, we get, we get sued all of the time. This is, uh, you know, this is kind of a, a regular procedure, and we give it to our lawyers and whatever else. The guy who who ser- who was serving them these papers to as a again, it was just a warning to go after their bond. He's not suing them. He turns around, he walks back to the lectern, he stands behind the microphone, and he says, "We're not suing you." We're, we're, we're threatening that we're going to come after your bond. And then the video stops. Again, it's on my Gab page. You can, you can watch the whole thing. There's not a whole lot to listen to, but uh, you, you can certainly watch it and see their reactions and everything. And, they, uh, and, and that's basically it. So again, even the, even the school board president doesn't know about the bonding process. He doesn't know that he's bonded through their insurance company. To follow his oath of office, and when when he violates that, there are endless things that he's not doing that he needs to be doing. You would think again that books like this existing in a library in a school that we wouldn't even be having this conversation. I mean, again, back in the '90s and '80s when I was going to school, this this would have been a fireable offense instantly. How did this book get here? Who brought it here? You're fired. That person would have been gone instantly. This, again, is how far we've fallen. We've fallen so far that this is not only commonplace, but even when individuals who are on these school boards are served with a, a warning, just a warning, to go, to go after their bonds, the, uh, they, they, they as school board members have no idea what it is that they're being handed. They just by default think they're being sued. It was like when we sent paperwork, these same legal warnings that we're going to go after your bonds. We, we sent these same things to city council and the mayor in the town where I lived. Same thing happened. City council member immediately jumped on Facebook and was like, today we've been threatened to be sued. And he does talk like that. He's gayer than a $3 bill. But he said, uh, you know, we get legal warnings all the time and 
you know, this is, they're trying to intimidate us by threatening to sue us. No, no, we weren't threatening to sue anybody, you dummy. What we were doing was we were going to go after your bonds if you failed to remove your mask mandates and all of these illegal mandates. And we also, of course, told them what the legal definition of the word mandate is. It means voluntary participation. If you want to be a dummy and wear a mask, you get to do that. But you can't force anybody to do that. That's illegal. And as you might imagine, the problem that I have regarding the school board and these perverse books in XYZ is the fact that parents continue to send their children to these schools where that exists, even after parents or lawyers or whomever serve the school board members with a legal warning to go after their insurance bonds that this right here, you would think it would change their minds as parents and say, well, wait a minute, this exists in our library? I didn't know that. What else, what else might I not know about what's going on in that school district? But don't worry, you know, just get on the bus and I've packed your lunch and have a great day. And they send them right back. I can't, you know, I, I got to tell you, it's the move that hasn't been made yet. We've seen pockets of it before, haven't we? I mean, we've seen certain examples where parents will pull their children out on one particular day to protest something. And we've seen that over the last couple of years, and most of it had to do with mask wearing. I mean, there was the occasional perverse thing. That's why students were, were protesting, but most of it had to do with mask wearing. We're not going to come to school. We're all going to protest on the other side of the uh, other side of the street, across the street from the school, and we're not going to enter the building until you remove your masks. That's actually worked. I mean, it's had it's caused superintendents to tell school board members, "You need to lift these mandates now and get rid of them, and we need to go back to the way that things normally were with our normal brainwashing tactics in X, Y, Z." I mean, that's actually worked. What would, what would cause them to crumble overnight in an instant and send everybody into a panic who works in these school buildings, and we have never seen this yet, is every parent or the vast majority remove their children permanently. And everybody calls the school district either that night after school has ended or the morning of, and they say, my child's name is so-and-so. I'm, I've officially unenrolled them from your, from your school district, and I'm, I'm making this phone call to formally tell you that. I'm also sending a letter to all of the school board members and the superintendent and your office directly. You now are in receipt of all of that information. Have a great day. One call after another, one email after another starts raining down on those schools. If that were to happen, I'm telling you. It'd be a dream come true, and it would be a level of panic you'd never see in your life. These people would be shitting themselves constantly. Again, if you thought that the parents going door to door or driving around in their cars with the signs outside of their cars saying, we miss you, you know, stay safe, don't get sick, COVID's only temporary. Remember all that stuff that was happening back in 2020 when they sent all the students home? And the K-12 school teachers all decided to carpool and drive around and drive around your, to your parents, uh, or I'm sorry, your, your students' homes. Surprise your students at their homes and make sure you wear a mask and tell them you miss them and blah, blah, blah. Almost every school district across the nation 
was encouraged to do that, not just from a social experiment standpoint, but their actual school employees, the school board members, the superintendents, they reined that down on building administrators to tell school teachers. The vast majority of school teachers just laughed at them. They laughed at them. They said, no, we're not doing that. But if there was a mass exodus as a, re- as a result of the state of affairs and people waking up from the matrix, you would see that all over again. Again, that's already happening. That's happening in L.A. I've brought that up before. The L.A. superintendent going door to door during the first week of school when no one was showing up. And I mean nobody was showing up. He's knocking on doors going, now you know you got to come to school, right? I mean, we're here for you and you got to come to our school. Forget homeschool. You can't do that. That's illegal. You got to come to our school. He was going door to door. That's pathetic. (laughs) That's beyond pathetic. That's like something you would see in Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares during an episode, which was every episode, where the entire restaurant caves in. And it has a bad reputation in the entire town or the entire city. And Ramsey would look at the owner of the place and he'd go, have you ever thought about going door to door and knocking on people's doors to get them to come to your restaurant and tell them that there's a new menu and there's new management and you're in charge and here's what we're offering and blah, blah, blah. And the owner's like, no, why would I do that? People just normally gravitate here. That's kind of what what typically happens. Uh, Again, when you have to do that, that implies that your entire business is crap. It just, it, that's the direct implication. Now, good for, you know, good for the restaurant owner and being able to turn things around if they in fact did that. But American K-12 schools are not restaurants. They're not restaurants. These places want your child from cradle to grave. They want to convince them to cut their genitals off, for God's sakes, among thou- a thousand other things teaching them endless lies and not learning cursive and being illiterate by the time they graduate from high school and not having to take any kind of graduation test in order to prove their competence other than the fact that they can breathe and tie their own shoes. You know, these are the kinds of things that they aren't concerned with. This is the entire business. It blows me away. And it's not going to get better, which again is why I'm going to continue to write those substacks in that order and continue to to list the things that are going on because everything I've mentioned thus far is just adding to the list and the list is getting bigger. It's getting bigger big time. Okay. Speaking of all of that and the corruption and insanity, you'll recall the Stanford University story of the uh, diversity dean and how they interrupted the federal judge's speech. Well, apparently, an update on that. The uh, Stanford University, rather, has put the diversity dean who berated the federal judge on leave. Now, I'm sure it's paid leave, which means it's a paid vacation, but let me read this. This comes from the Washington Free Beacon. It says Stanford Law School rules out discipline for student protesters and blames administrators instead. Interesting. It says Trianne Steinbeck, again, I'm mispronouncing her name, don't care. It says the the diversity and administrator at Stanford Law School, who stoked a disruptive protest of Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan, is currently on leave according to a memo on the protest reviewed by the Washington Free Beacon. It says Jenny Martinez, the, the law school's dean, 
said in a Wednesday morning memo to all students that administrators should not insert themselves into the debate with their own criticism of the speaker's views. At future talks, the role of administrators will be to, quote, ensure that university rules on disruption of events will be followed, Martinez said. Martinez gave no additional details on the terms of Steinbeck's leave, stating that the university does not comment publicly on the pending personnel matters. Well, see, that's funny. Again, I... The hypocrisy knows no bounds here. Um, the university doesn't, pub, uh, doesn't comment publicly on the investigation of a... Uh, or, or the discipline of a professor that was remarkably public, and yet in countless other cases, universities do that, don't they? They immediately run to the media and they slander countless individuals, and then the individual is left uh, having to defend themselves in the court of public opinion, and that's usually a losing battle. So, yeah. Equal justice under the law, I think not, and certainly not regarding policy. It says uh, she also ruled out any discipline of, the, of any of the students who shouted down Duncan, in part, she said, because administrators sent conflicting signals about whether what was happening was acceptable or not. It said, instead, the law school will require all students to attend a training on freedom of speech and the norms of the legal profession which will discuss, among other things, how, quote, vulgar personnel uh, insults, personal insults, rather, can harm students' professional reputations. And it goes on and on and on. I'm going to stop it there. Uh, Yeah, it's a law school. And the students should behave like future lawyers, but they aren't. They're, They're behaving like Bolsheviks because they're Bolsheviks. And these are people who actually believe, again, that they're either going to, well, they will pass this law school, but they'll, of course, have to pass the bar exam, and then they'll have to get hired by a firm or go out and do their own thing. In any case, they're not going to be successful lawyers, I don't think, in a courtroom behaving the way that they behave during a basic lecture like this. You can't talk to a judge like that. The judge will throw you out and throw whatever case out that, uh, that you're a part of. At least I assume that's the case. I'm, I'm sure A.J. Gocha can, can fill in the legal parameters of, of what would take place during an actual trial of some kind or, or some kind of a, a procedure. But if you're a lawyer, you can't just stand up and start randomly screaming your feelings at the top of your lungs and expect to be taken seriously. It doesn't work that way. Again, I've never even been to law school, and I know that. You can't, you can't stand up in a courtroom and look at the judge and call him a racist. Racist? And just at the top of your lungs. They feel like they can do that in a lecture, but you can't do that in a courtroom. Yikes. I don't know. Some in the water. I'm telling you. These are not survivable skills. If this is the future of the legal profession, and this is... I, I, I actually think we're already seeing it, by the way. I've been watching a lot of these Senate hearings in the, uh, from the Judicial Committee in the Senate. And, and these nominees that Joe Biden's putting forth, my God, they can't spell the word law. I mean, a lot of these people have no idea what they're doing. I, I'm shocked that they even got hired, let alone passed law school, but apparently they did. It's, uh, it's embarrassing. I don't, I don't see that getting any better necessarily. But that's also part of, the, part of the problem, isn't it? And it's part of the plan, is to pervert the entire law school 
environment, um, along with endless other environments, the trade schools, the K-12 schools, the university settings, regardless of the major in the course of study, the medical profession. It's just designed to make all of it lazy and dumb and radical and Bolshevik as much as, as, much as humanly possible. So, yikes. Okay. Now, here's the next subject. You've heard me bring this up to the business of university professors wanting to unionize. And we know why they do it. We know why K-12 teachers unionize. They don't do it because they think that they're doing the right thing. They, they do it because of one of two reasons. They think that somebody's going to falsely accuse them, uh, accuse them of something, or they have some agenda that they want to uh, push forth, and they, wanna, they basically want the backing of a union to defend them, so they think. There's another reason, however, which of course it has to do with making sure that the person maintains their, their place of employment and their employment status, no matter what. And there are more and more universities that are seeking to unionize, uh, Miami University, where I live, being one of them. But now there's a little twist, and it has to do with librarians and librarians actually wanting to unionize. So allow me to read this recent article from our local uh, terrible newspaper. It says, quote, in the wake of a recent rejection by a state labor board, Miami University librarians announced they are taking up their own petition campaign to form an employee union. Earlier this month, Miami's Faculty Alliance of Miami, FAM, FAM, said the State Employment Relations Board, or SERB, rule in its favor to allow the faculty group to include some Miami University employees in an upcoming union authorization vote, but not others. Um, let's see. It says Miami University faculty closer to union approval, some, though some not included. It says, but among the Miami employees designated as not authorized were librarians at the university's Oxford main campus and regional campuses in Hamilton and Middletown which totaled 30 such staffers. In a recent statement from FAM officials, they publicly endorsed the school's librarians' effort to form a collective bargaining group in its labor relations with Miami. It says, quote, FAM organizers originally sought to include all full-time faculty at Miami, including librarians, in their unit. However, the State Employment Relations Board decision excluded the librarians from the unit in part as they were labeled by the university as staff and not as faculty, as they are at most Ohio public universities, said FAM officials. Now again, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit more from this, but if you think it's about you know, them doing this so that they can keep perverse books in their university library, that's probably not it. I mean, that's probably not the entire agenda. They're doing this because they want to keep their jobs. They're doing this because they don't want to be excluded from any kind of negotiation regarding contracts or job loss. Because as we can assume, if you have 30 librarians and you're looking to make cuts as a university and save a little bit of money, why wouldn't you cut the librarians? Do you need that many? Probably not. There are a lot of volunteer students that do it uh, in their free time anyway. They may do it for course credit. They may do it as a graduation requirement. 
They may even do it as community service, for all I know. Uh, Court-ordered community service, maybe. But do you need 30? And they're panicking, and rightfully so. The amount of gossip that exists within these environments when it comes to job loss is immense. And I'm sure that they've been a part of those conversations as to who's going to get cut and who isn't. But there you go. Librarians actually unionizing. It's rather pathetic, I think. It continues, and it says, however, the ruling did not preclude them from filing their own form with the unit. Teaching professors, clinical faculty, and lecturers, long-term contract faculty, were included in the possible new union unit, along with tenured and tenure-track faculty alliance officials said previously. Again, when you're talking about actual professors themselves wanting to unionize, they're wanting to do it because of the way that they behave. They want their behavior to be tolerated by unions and then have unions and union lawyers and so on and so forth come to their defense for being a crazy person. That's, that's really why that takes place. Yes, it has to do with the threat of job loss and, and cutting, cutting positions uh, or even cutting programs. But I think I said this in the Substack article on the list. One of the things that these people will do, of course, is if a program gets cut or an entire department gets eliminated, if they're unionized, then the university has to find a place for these people. So they will uh, start asking them, well, what do you want to teach? What do you feel like teaching? And then they'll move them to another department, and those departments will unfortunately have to take in the crazy people and, uh, and make the crazy people feel at home, which I'm sure they will because they're all crazy. Let's not kid ourselves. And, and that's just basically what's going to happen. So. They'll move around the crazy people at a university, and they've always done that, but they'll do it uh, just at an amplified level in order to uh, maintain their union status because they can't get rid of them. Because again, if they have tenure, then they're already there. It's basically the same thing they do at the K-12 level. The union exists to keep the person there when the person doesn't belong there in the first place. So they'll take them out of a building because some people don't like them, and they'll move them into another building where people have to tolerate them. It's, uh, yeah, what's the phrase? Passing the lemon, I believe, is one of many, or passing the trash even. I've heard it called that also. That's, uh, that's going to continue to take place, again, just at a ramped up level, at the university level. It says, uh, let's see, blah, 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 I said that. It says, the pro-union effort, which has been seeking to unionize the school's faculty since spring of 2020, interesting timing, at the time described, the state's early March ruling as a mixed bag and said they were disappointed about the Miami employees who are not allowed to vote or join any newly formed union as sought by FAM. It says uh, Miami University officials have previously said that the ruling was not a positive for the school, which is Butler County's largest employer, with workers at both the main and regional campuses and a learning center in Westchester Township and blah, 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 blah. It says, our librarians play a critical part in furthering our university mission and delivering academic excellence to our students. They have to say that. They have no choice. They have to make it sound like they need to be there. And as we know, an entire library can be run by basically two people. So how many libraries do you have? You have three because you have three campuses. So. 
go from 30 employees down to, I can do the math, six people. <laughs> I'm sure they can manage. <laughs> I'm sure that they can, uh, I'm sure they'll manage. I'm sure they'll do just fine. Okay. That aside now, that leads me into this briefly. The, the one story that takes us from education to jab-related talk. And there's always one, ladies and gentlemen. And there are many, actually. Uh, I saw more uh, football players. College football players are dropping from the jabs. There's that. There's also this. And uh, I don't know if this happened on your college campus when, when you attended college, if you did. And I don't know if it happens on college campuses around where you live, if you happen to live around one. But for a very long time, the Friday or I think, yeah, it is the Friday, the Friday before spring break at Miami University, they always call that day Green Beer Day. Sometimes it would fall on St. Patrick's Day, sometimes it wouldn't, but either way, they would always call it Green Beer Day. And uh, the dummies would put on green shirts and run around and get loaded and drink green beer and, and think that they had accomplished something. Even when I attended the university, I did not really partake in Green Beer Day because we would throw the party. You know, we didn't go out and, and do things at other bars and wake up at six in the morning, which is when the bars would open and they'd stay up, you know, basically stay open all night long and, and you know, people would get loaded and then take naps and then get loaded again and go out again. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. You saw people making some of the dumbest decisions ever. And of course, as you would expect, the arrests would increase and so on and so forth. It was, it was a police nightmare. Um, it was also an undercover police nightmare when, when I attended. They would have undercover cops dressed as college students and graduate students. And then they would ensnare both underage drinkers and individuals who were too intoxicated to walk or talk. Um, yeah, I mean, they were doing their jobs, but it was, it was dangerous basically for everybody because, again, if you were just there to have a decent time and mind your own business, before you knew it, you would end up with handcuffs around your wrists, and that's the way that that would go. So it was basically you were, you were almost guaranteed to, to have a run-in with a police officer. It, it seemed like a bit of a nightmare. Either way. They had that uh, yet again this past Friday, um, a week ago, before their spring break. And wouldn't you know it, they were, there were numerous quotes by both police officers and other individuals, people attending and students and a few others, musicians and bar owners and whatever. And they're like, wow, it seems really strange that there just aren't a lot of students here. Seems really strange that this was. Uh, this was toned down this year. That Green Beer Day just didn't seem to have a lot of participants. And they're actually saying things like, maybe, uh, maybe, they're, maybe they're learning. Maybe they're becoming more mature. Maybe they know about the dangers of alcohol. <laughs> That's not why. That's not why. That isn't it. They're not participating because no one's there. Why is no one on the campus? Why is no one there? It's because of the jabs. It's because of the jabs. It can't get more obvious. They're not making these connections. They're not saying, gee, business seems down on the one day where you can quite literally drive through High Street at any time of the day and it would be packed. And I mean packed. You would have people up and down the sidewalks, 
people filling the bars and restaurants, eating and drinking all day long. Countless people everywhere, all dressed very similar, wearing green stuff. It's the one day everybody pretends to be Irish. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. But they're not making the connection that it's jab-related, and that's why people aren't there. They're jabbed, they're sick, they're dying, and they've unenrolled from your university. And you're sitting around wondering why this is the smallest green beer day you've ever had in the last 10 plus years. I'm telling you why. And that that was uh, almost a direct quote from Lieutenant Laura Fenning of the Oxford Police Department. Honestly, they just don't know. But it's not been too crazy in the last 10 years or so, quote unquote. She does, however, say that she thinks that uh, there are definitely, it says, quote, there are definitely more people out than normal Thursday, but that has not been too crazy in the last 10 years or so. That was the full quote. Today was very calm, calmer than any other year I've encountered, unquote. Weird. (laughs) Why is that? Why is that? Why is your campus dead empty? Why are your university professors wanting to unionize? Why are your librarians wanting to unionize? Why is your school president essentially going state to state to try to recruit people who know about this university anyway in the surrounding area and all over the United States because either their family members went here or their parents went here? Why are they why is he now on a tour to try to recruit people to come to his university? It's almost like no one's coming here anymore. You know, because of the jabs, because they killed off their customers, and that's just not good business. Because if they were a restaurant, as we've all seen this meme, if they were a restaurant and they were serving poison in the kitchen and people were dying when it was being served to them, no one would come back. It's almost like that's happening. (laughs) Because that's happening. That's the part that I laugh at. I'm not laughing at people dying, okay? I want to make that abundantly clear. That's not it. I'm laughing at the fact that this is at face value and they aren't making the connection. I find that to be both funny and uh, very disturbing to the point of tears almost. I mean, it's, it's crazy that they can't see it. They can't see it. If you were to show them, again, my substack or email that to any of them, they'd be like, whatever, this is one person's opinion. We're fine. We're not insolvent. Everything is fine. They can keep telling themselves that all they want. But we're looking at them, and they're on fire, running down the street like a crazy person, and they're screaming that they're not on fire. Yes, you are. It's beyond evident that that's what's going on here. Blows me away. That leads me to this now. I want to spend a minute here talking about gatekeepers. This is one of those consistent subjects that I know gets brought up, and a lot of people, of course, are criticized for being gatekeepers, and a lot of insults are hurtled at at individuals, and uh, judgments are made, and whatever else. I'm not really going to make any insults, but, but I'm going to make some objective comments here regarding one individual. And there's an interview that I recommend you go and watch if you're interested, uh, and it is with Dr. Peter McCullough. He was on, quite frankly, last week, and that interview ended up getting Frank's show kicked off of YouTube for a week. 
this is this is interesting because if you watch the interview, you're going to hear the tone that Dr. McCullough takes regarding other individuals and what he thinks other individuals like us should be paying attention to. At one point in that interview, and we have to keep a couple of things in mind here before I mention what he said. We know that Dr. McCullough is a virologist or a cardiologist, rather. He believes that viruses are real, or at least he continues to say that they are. He believes that variants are real. He continues to say that they are, and he does so in this interview. But here's how you can tell a gatekeeper it's really two ways, I think. The first way is their inability to learn and shed their skin of things that they used to know and then reformulate what were ultimately opinions and not facts and then arrive at a singular hard fact. When a person fails to do that and they are in the limelight, so to speak, and they have a large following and all of this other stuff, they get all the clicks and the likes and the interviews and whatever else. When those, ind- when those individuals exist and they, and they refuse to change, that's your number one indicator that they're a gatekeeper because the evidence is overwhelming that refutes their foundational principles that they are still clinging on to. That's kind of number one. Number two, you have to examine what their motives are for maintaining that fictional foundation. He has a medical license. He knows that people are consistently coming after his medical license. Me- uh, medical boards are doing that, I'm sure. They've done it in the past. He has to blow off certain conversations and certain topics of discussion because he doesn't want people coming after his medical license time and time again. He loses his medical license. He thinks he's out of a job permanently, and he'll never make another dime ever again. That's not necessarily true. Certainly not for these medical doctors who are engaging in these massive. Uh, nationwide and worldwide tour speaking events. I'm I'm sure they're doing just fine. I mean, look at all the money Simone Gold has allegedly stolen, for God's sakes, uh, from gullible Americans and gullible people all over the place. My God, I'm telling you right now, I could digress on Simone Gold with this video that I just saw her. It made me barf. Oh, it's disgusting. I, it's impossible to get it out of my head, but I got to, I got to stay on Robert. Uh, I'm going to stay on <laughs> Peter McCullough, Robert Malone. I'm going to stay on Peter McCullough here. In the interview, again, here's the other thing, and this is really the third point as to where you can find out who a gatekeeper is. A gatekeeper will tell you who to pay attention to and who not to pay attention to and what to think and what not to think, okay? I always encourage anybody listening to the sound of my voice or reading anything that I read to think for yourself. Always shed your skin. Of particular opinions because that's a survivable characteristic. You've heard me say that time and time again. I assure you, I'm not a gatekeeper. I'm not that smart. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to be a gatekeeper. It, it's, it seems like way too much effort uh, to, to try to maintain some facade. Not to mention, I, of course, don't have a large audience. And I'm actually kind of grateful for that because I get to fly below the radar on, on a number of t- different topics here. But uh, I also don't have a, a medical license to lose or an educator certificate to lose. They've all been forfeited anyway, so they're gone. I never had a medical license anyway, but you know the teaching certificate stuff—that's all. That's all ashes. 
and thank God for it. Because again, they use that to hold over you so that you maintain uh, the lies that they want you to maintain. My point is this, in that interview, and and this should tell you where, again, the conversation went when he was done talking on the show, was Peter McCullough openly said, and you can go and watch it yourself, it's on Rumble, on Quite Frankly's Rumble channel, which I recommend you subscribe to it if you're interested, but he he said he openly said that he understands that I'm paraphrasing him, but he 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 said that he understands that people want to debate the existence of virology and whether or not viruses are real or not. And then he says, "I don't recommend you pay attention to that. That's all a distraction. Don't pay attention to that. That's not the debate that needs to take place. That's not where you." And he says, "You." need to place your focus. He says you should place your focus on medical freedom. That's the only place that you should put it, is medical freedom. You need to pay attention to medical freedom, not whether viruses are real or not. Ladies and gentlemen, the man is a gatekeeper, period. That does not mean that he hasn't helped people. That's not that's not what it means. Labeling somebody a gatekeeper doesn't mean again that they were useless these, this entire time. They haven't been useless. Even Simone Gold was useful at a moment in time. However, you can't even have a conversation with someone like Simone Gold about viruses not being real and virology being disproven over 120 some odd years ago. You can't have that with her. She's too busy again making these videos, playing the victim. They came after me, and they came after me, and my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor, and they came after me, or whatever family member she's referring to. That's that's all that the gatekeepers have, have. I mean, that's it. Playing the victim, and then trying to direct the conversation in a in a advantageous way for them, monetarily speaking. They have to keep, they have to do that. They have to keep that going. If they don't keep that going, their house of cards crumbles to the ground. Again, if if well, you've heard me bring this up on an episode of the Five Docs a long time ago. Um, Dr. Larry Pilevsky brought up how he was on stage with Dr. McCullough at at a speaking event, and they had a debate about virology. Pilevsky knows that viruses aren't real. McCullough believes that they're real. Both of them have medical licenses. Both of them practice. McCullough's afraid. Pilevsky's not afraid. Pilevsky's not afraid to tell the truth about what's really going on. McCullough is. And lots of people, again, have dug into McCullough's past and his present and who he's associated with in these particular organizations. And they're questionable, to say the least, just like Robert Malone just like Simone Gold. Because again, if you crack apart the foundation of the medical industry and you destroy it, what will come from that will have to be nothing but the truth. But they don't want to get caught up in that whirlwind because that's going to mean that they lose their licenses and what are they going to do now? Their money goes away, so they think. Their grifting goes away. The stories of Omicron variants and, well, the vaccine doesn't work for Omicron. There is no flipping Omicron. It doesn't exist. Never did, never has, won't in the future. 
but he consistently says these things. And then what you saw was, is as you're watching this, you can tell that there are people communicating in the chat. And I, I'm not paying attention to the chat if I watch his show, when I watch his show. Um, I, I, I never pay attention to the chat boards when I'm watching somebody's particular program or, or listening to them. But you could tell that the chat conversation had switched to essentially going after McCullough a little bit. Now, again, I haven't read the chat, so I don't know for certain, but it's, it certainly seemed like that because when McCullough was done talking, the questions that were, that were coming in about the interview had to do with the fact that viruses aren't real, that they're not real. What's he talking about Omicron for? That's not real. That doesn't exist in, in yada, yada, yada. He's bringing all, and, and again, listeners were bringing all of that up. I said it out loud too when I was watching it. I thought to myself, this guy just looked at all of us and told us what conversations we can and cannot have, what we should and should not focus on. He doesn't get to tell us that. We, we get to think for ourselves and do whatever we want. And we get to. Again, it, it's, it's such a dirty landscape because even a, a, a show like Frank's, which I, I greatly respect, and I greatly respect what he does, there are only so many guests that he can have on his show that go against the tide and that corrupt just sewer infested tide and and not lose his show or not be penalized as long as he's playing the YouTube game. I fully get it. He's playing the YouTube game for monetary reasons and uh and and that's what he's doing. But look what happens even when he toes the line with someone like Peter McCullough. He gets his show kicked off for a week. See if he had if he had Dr. Thomas Cowan on talking about how viruses aren't real and that was the entire premise of the show. More people would learn from that than listening to a gatekeeper like Peter McCullough. Again, I'm not criticizing Frank and who, who his guests are. That's, that's not what this is about. That's not my concern. I, it's his show. He can do whatever he wants. It just has to do with the listeners of the audience and then the penalties that are going to come about from the very platform that gatekeeps as a platform. So you have a gatekeeper like McCullough who's on YouTube and he's giving an interview and then Frank is penalized for allowing that to take place because he's basically hosting two gatekeepers at the same time, the platform YouTube and then Peter McCullough himself. So it doesn't matter if Peter McCullough is a gatekeeper or not. He is, but the left is still going to come after him. Because the left still doesn't like what he says, because what, what is he saying? He's saying that the jabs don't work. That's, that's the overarching line that the corrupt government and, and satanic machine doesn't want people to say. That's why, again, you get on Spotify right now listening to this show, and you'll see them flag all of my shows as being COVID disinformation. For real facts on COVID, click here. And it's the CDC's website on COVID. The CDC is going to cease to exist in the future. It'll cease to exist. What, what exactly do they do other than get people killed now? I mean, they've defined themselves. They've, they've pushed their own parameters as a private organization to the nth degree to where now they are actual murderers. 
So yes, click on the CDC's website and find more information about how they want to kill you. That's, that's what's going on here. So, gatekeepers. I'm, I'm not, they're everywhere. I'm not telling you who to pay attention to and who not to, necessarily. But what I am going to do throughout the existence of this show, as long as I do it, is I'm just going to bring up some people who I think have said very questionable things. And if you're anything like me, you don't like someone telling you how to think or what to pay attention to or what conversation to have. The moment that they say that, I just reach into my quiver and I pull out a giant red flag and I go, bang, right into the ground. You're a gatekeeper. You're trying to keep me from thinking about something that I know is factually accurate, viruses not existing. And you want to perpetuate whatever it is you're perpetuating, probably for monetary or professional reasons. I don't like that. I don't like that. You see, the again, the Five Docs had a really good episode this past Thursday, last Thursday. Um, they had on an EMF guy talking about electromagnetic frequency, how you can try to protect yourself, some things that you can do, certain habits, wiring your house instead of using wireless turning your devices off, keeping them a distance away from you from, you know, when you're sleeping, considering getting rid of your uh your spring beds and and using the memory foam beds instead, getting rid of your smart meters on your homes, things of that nature. Um it was a lot of useful information. And then they of course went into a debate about how people will listen to their show and get upset because they think that the five docs are laughing about people who who are dying regarding all of this. And, and they defended themselves, and rightfully so, and they said, look, we're not laughing at people dying. We continue to be shocked, and it's sometimes comical that people aren't picking up what seems to be blatantly obvious. But I fully understand again getting back to McCullough and gatekeepers I fully understand it's a difficult it's a difficult conversation for even a layperson to have because they don't want to believe that the foundation on which these so-called professionals operate on that that foundation is jello and that it's actually a lie it's not firm and it doesn't exist it's actually been disproven See, this is the gift that we're being given right now, and we're giving it, we're being given it by God on purpose at this time, and it's to keep us alive so that we can help keep other people alive. Once you, as you've heard me say, and endless people have said it, when you wake up, you don't go back to sleep. A lifetime of study has to be a lifetime of study, because leisure without study is death, so saith Seneca. He's right. It's true. If you're not learning and you're not shedding that skin, then, then what are you doing? You're either chasing a coin, you're trying to maintain your particular status in your particular profession because you think you have to, or you're, or you're all of those things and a gatekeeper. I find that problematic. I will always find that problematic. So again... I recommend uh, going over to the Rumble channel and subscribing to Quite Frankly if you want, and certainly give that interview a listen, and you'll hear him. You'll hear him say it. I mean, he, you know, he's he's rather full of himself. He's got a little Simone Gold in him, a little I can't do any wrong. I've got it all figured out. We know this and we know that, but don't you dare have a conversation about that. Well, 
we get to have conversations about whatever we want, whenever we want. And we need to keep doing that because that's what's winning. That's why we are winning. And we are winning. We're winning because we're surpassing people like him and saying, no, the conversation has to go to another level. And if you, Dr. McCullough and Dr. Gold and Malone and these other goobers, if you don't want to have those conversations, well, then go back on your Clay Clark Reawakening America tour and continue to grift from the large churchgoers that you're grifting from. But, you know, it doesn't involve us. We have more conversations that we can have at a higher level, and we're going to keep having them. So, boom, bam. There you go. Okay, next one. Uh, here we go. The new normal, ladies and gentlemen. This comes from the Gateway Pundit. Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky, the tri-state area where I live, and Pennsylvania, it says, work on legislations to have more defibrillator access in schools. Weird. <laughs> Why would that be? Why would that be? See, they're not interested in the cause. They're interested in trying to profit from the solution. New laws are being proposed to increase access to automated external defibrillators, AEDs, in educational institutions in the states of Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania. You know, because of COVID and the variants and long COVID. That's what's causing it. It's not the jabs, ladies and gentlemen. Of course it's the jabs. What else is it? After ignoring the alarming increase in heart attack deaths among children and adults for three years, what's, what's, what's gone on over the last three years? Uh, the mainstream media and the government finally began to cover the story. However, they are too blind to see the cause of these incidents, it says. Their solution is more defibrillators in schools. Lawmakers in some states like Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania are now calling for more access. These people are disgusting. Disgusting. It breaks down each state. couple of quotes. Here's one from Pennsylvania, quote, The awareness around this issue has increased, as we saw in January, when we saw DeMar Hamlin on the field, and you saw that action plan. Muth said at an event int introducing the bills. This is uh, Katie Muth, a Democrat. Of course. Um, they said, quote, that emergency action plan that I practiced when I was an athletic trainer was happening in live, real life, and he's alive today because of an AED, unquote. And all they're doing is referencing these teenagers collapsing. One, one reference after another. Well, this person collapsed, and they could have survived if they had an AED. And this person collapsed, and thank God they survived because an AED was there, but not all schools have them, and we need to make this commonplace. I have a better idea. How about you throw yourselves off a bridge because you have no idea what's going on? And as I say at the end of the substack, ladies and gentlemen, if these people who work in these education environments specifically, politicians aside for a minute, we can assume they're all dummies, but the people who work in these education environments, if they ever come to grips with what they've done, they will not be able to live with themselves. 
but I don't think that many of them ever will. I think that stories like this are perfect for their capacity to rationalize. Yes, we need AEDs. We need more defibrillators around because that's just common sense. But they're never going to ask the why. Why is it all of the sudden that this is happening? What's changed over the last three years? It's unbelievable. Well, here's what's changed over the last three years. If they were curious, this comes from the expose title. UK government confirms COVID vaccinated teens and young adults are 92% more likely to die than unvaccinated teens and young adults. Yep. It says official figures published by the UK's Office of National Statistics shows that death per 100,000 among double vaccinated 18 to 39 years old were on average 91% higher than deaths per 100,000 among unvaccinated 18 to 39-year-olds between January 2021 and January of 2022. This means it can no longer be denied that the COVID-19 vaccines are deadly because even the official government published figures uh, now prove it, it says. And in typical exquisite expose fashion, they have all the charts. They've got all the line graphs, the bar graphs, the stats over the course of the year period from January 2021 to January 2022. It's un deniable. Undeniable. Here's another undeniable headline. This is from theburningplatform.com. Quote, they knew. FOIA document shows government anticipated mass vaccine injuries, then observed them from day one. It says, quote, nobody disagrees at this point that there is a plethora of excess deaths and a dearth of births, uh, a trend that has been, or I'm sorry, that should be the number one alarming public policy issue. That's an understatement. It says, yet, when any of us suggest that the gene therapy, therapy ubiquitously given to the world right about the time of the jump in these numbers might be responsible, people look at us like we are from Mars. However, it turns out, based on newly released FOIA documents from the CDC that our government knew about and even anticipated massive reports of injuries from these shots from day one. Yes. Yes, they knew. It's in the paperwork. Again, this is a great article. Also, charts referencing it. They're consistently referencing VAERS report also. Again, as unreliable as that is, there are still reports in there of the jabs killing people. They're probably still deleting VAERS reports specifically to keep the numbers at a certain level, but there's no denying it. There's absolutely no denying it. So, I want to end with this. I put a audio video. I know that's a bit odd, but it's just audio. There's there's nothing to watch, but it is titled it's about an hour long and it's kind of a lecture from an individual describing a number of different things regarding the time that we're living in. I think it's remarkably interesting. I think it's I think it's important if you're interested in checking it out, please do so. It is titled, The Tight Grip of Evil. And he speaks for approximately 30 to 40 minutes, and then he answers some questions from some listeners of his. 
Um, I don't have all the specifics of who this person is or where the, where they can be located because some people have even asked me, but it's very well done and I, and I agree with what they're saying. It's a giant summary of basically walking away from the system and learning to walk away from endless endless things in society. Uh, he starts off his lecture by telling a story, and I just want to play that story here because I think it exemplifies what I do and what I'm doing and what I'm, what I'm consistently trying to do with, with, this, with this broadcast and this show. So again, I just wanted to thank you for listening. Give this quick story a listen, and I will catch you on Wednesday. Peace. There was, once upon a time, an author that enjoyed doing his writing on the beach beside the ocean. Before he set about doing his writing, though, he liked to go for a long walk. One day, while going about his walk along the shore, he noticed a person in the distance. It looked like this person was dancing, and the author smiled while pondering the idea of someone who would be dancing at this early hour of the day. He became quite curious and continued to head in that direction. As he got closer, he realized that it was a young woman and she wasn't dancing, but was instead reaching down to the shore and picking something up and gently throwing it into the ocean. The author eventually caught up to the woman. Good morning. May I ask what exactly it is that you're doing? The young woman looked up, hesitated for a moment, and then responded. I'm throwing starfish back into the ocean. The author is a little confused. I suppose I should have asked, why are you throwing starfish back into the ocean? The woman replies, the sun is up and the tide is going out. If I don't throw them back in, they'll die. But, young lady, don't you realize that there are miles upon miles of beach and starfish all along it? You can't possibly make a difference. The woman listened politely, picked up another starfish, and threw it into the sea and said, it made a difference for that one. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.